I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Julie Kohler. She's a fellow at the National Women's Law Center, and she joined me to discuss a new analysis that they've recently published showing that women are more effective state legislators than men. Now, I've seen similar studies in the past about how women in politics are generally more prolific, they pass more bills, etc., but I've never seen the data at the state legislative level. And this is important because everyone in politics right now is focused on winning state legislatures. And I've done at least a half dozen episodes on this topic this year alone, because a lot of people have come to realize that winning state legislative races is the key to passing more bills like paid family leave or expanding voting rights and like passing the Equal Rights Amendment. And this new analysis from the National Women's Law Center is just another way to think about what can be accomplished with greater legislative power and what women women specifically can accomplish with that power. So here is my conversation with Julie Kohler. Julie Kohler, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So the National Women's Law Center, you conducted an analysis that that uncovered that women were more effective and more prolific state legislators than men. And, you know, I'm kind of familiar with this research because I think a few years ago there was an analysis done that uncovered similar data, right? But I don't think anything's been done recently and specifically looking at women and state legislators. Is that is that true? Yeah, that's exactly right. I've been really interested post-2018 at kind of what is transpiring in the wake of these really record gains in political representation for women. And there's been a lot of focus on the changes in Congress and the role of newly elected women in the House, both in taking back democratic control of the House, but also in kind of what's what the issues that they're advancing. But it's in the states where the gains in political representation are actually even more dramatic. And so I was curious in looking at the states because I think they provide a really important window into, you know, the effects of more reflective representation on policy outcomes and examining what are we seeing in states now that we're seeing you know, real gains and tremendous variety across states and a huge range in terms of women's representation. No, you're absolutely right. And just to go over some of the numbers, I mean, we've made some significant inroads at the state level. So I think that in 2018, there's been, what, a three-point gain in legislative seats for women? Yeah, over the last two years, we've seen, so now we're about at 29% in terms of women's representation overall across all of the states. In Congress, it's about 23%. But then we're seeing real tremendous disparity across states. And so, for example, in 2018, Nevada became the very very first state to have a majority women state legislature, the first in the country. Right. So I think in 2018, there were 300 seats gained by women. Is that right? That sounds like a lot. Yeah. All of the gains in 2018 were due to Democratic women. So it wasn't just women across the board. It was really women based on political party. So while there were pickups in the state legislature of over 300 seats for Democratic women, Republican women actually lost 40, more than 40 seats seats in 2018. So all of the gains in representation have been as a result of Democratic women's victories. Wow. I want to talk about the difference in the parties there in a minute, because that's that's really, really interesting. But I don't want to forget about Virginia. I don't know if you've mentioned Virginia yet, but that one was really important because I think it was about a month ago, maybe three weeks ago, that Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA. And that was specifically because of these gains at the state level by women. 
women. There was Eileen Fuller Corn, right? And you know, you want to talk about Virginia? Absolutely, absolutely. So you know, in a in over the last couple of election cycles, we've seen real transformations in the composition of the Virginia legislature, both the House of Delegates and the Senate. Not only have Democrats taken back control of both. Um, both houses, but we've really seen transformations in women's leadership. So a record 40 women now serve in Virginia's House of Delegates. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, they now have the first woman speaker um, with Eileen Filler-Korn's election as Speaker of the House of Delegates. And we have the first Black woman in um, as serving as majority leader in the House of Delegates. There's just leadership and reflective representation across the board. Danica Rome became the first transgender woman to chair a committee in the Virginia House of Delegates. So we're really seeing just kind of historic firsts all across the country in terms of women's representation. So do we have any idea of what's happening with Republican women and why it's kind of the reverse of what's happening with with Democratic women, right? Because I think that the analysis uncovered also that that as far as like all the groups that you looked at, you know, Democratic men, Democratic women, you know, Republican men, Republican women, Democratic women are on top as far as being the most effective and the most prolific and at the very bottom or on the other end of the spectrum are Republican women. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So maybe I can first talk about kind of what we found in terms of the patterns, and then I'd love to go into the the issue of of, of women in greater detail too. Yeah. So the National Women's Law Center partnered with Quorum. Quorum is a public affairs software platform um, to run some new analyses. And what we wanted to do was really look at how women state legislators were faring these last two years. And what we found was several things. So first of all. Women state legislators introduced more bills and saw more of their legislation enacted than their male counterparts. And as we said, as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, that actually replicates other findings that have found that women legislators tend to be more productive or effective in passing legislation than men. But what we also found was that greater representation of women was associated with greater productivity overall. So legislators, all legislators serving in chambers that had greater levels of representation, of women's representation, introduced and passed more bills in the last two legislative sessions than those serving in legislatures with fewer women. So in other words, there was an overall effect, there was an overall benefit to having more diverse legislatures. Um, also, I think this was, you know, the, the question that you asked about party differences. We really did find that this was that the productivity was not just a function of gender, but was really the kind of intersection of gender and political party. Democratic women state legislators introduced more bills and saw more of their bills enacted than Democratic men, than Republican men and Republican women alike. And finally, Democratic women we're also more likely to champion legislation that supports women and their families and to get that legislation passed. So, for example, in 2019, Democratic women state legislators introduced and successfully enacted bills on paid family leave, on child care, sexual harassment, minimum wage than any other group of state legislators. So the kind of a, that, that interplay with political party is one that I think really does warrant more discussion. And I think what was interesting and certainly noteworthy was that when we looked at, you know, comparing kind of the four groups of state legislators, Democratic women introduced and enacted the highest number of bills 
And the group that introduced and enacted the lowest number of bills was Republican women. So that was a particularly striking difference, that it wasn't just a function of gender, but that it really seemed to be the interplay between gender and political party. I would imagine that it would be really hard to determine why that is. I mean, I'm just really curious myself that what is it about the difference in culture between the two parties and the women in both parties that would make that difference? I mean, do we know? I don't know that we know for certain, but we can certainly, I think, speculate. One of the other things that I've been doing is over the past year, I've been interviewing a number of women state legislators about their experiences. And I've talked to Democratic women. They've all been Democratic women. I've spoken to them uh, women serving in Democratic majorities and Republican majorities, you know, in, in widely different states with wildly different political cultures. Um, so I've gotten kind of a good sense of some of the dynamics um, that they're experiencing. I will say that numbers of Democratic women, newly elected Democratic women, also have really noted that they're serving in chambers where the leadership really supported them and was open and receptive to the contributions of new legislators, really, you know, kind of empowered them and encouraged them. Now, this is, of course, not an experience across the board, but it was noteworthy that many were coming in and really kind of, you know, coming into legislative cultures that was that were excited about, you know, kind of mentoring them along or in, encouraging them to to play their role. And I just don't know, I, I you know, if that is the case within Republican circles. You know, I've written about some of the uh, challenges that Republican women have had in elections in the last, you know, couple of cycles. And I think as we've seen swings in, in particular, white women's voting patterns. I mean, women of color have always voted overwhelmingly Democratic. Black women particularly have really been, you know, the core and of the Democratic uh, voting base. But as white women have swung more Democratic post-2016, what's left in kind of the Republican base is, you know, more disproportionately more white men. And that's been reflected in the leadership. And I'm just, I'm curious as to kind of how that translates into legislative culture. I don't know, but I think these will be really interesting questions to be exploring. So, you know, what's really interesting that I would imagine that the culture mirrors what you'd see in any professional environment when you have more women, right? If you just take some some company in the private sector, when there are more women, you know, the, the environment becomes more friendly and more open to the ideas of women. Yeah. So I would imagine that it would be something similar, right? As yeah. Republican women begin to kind of shift to the Democratic Party after 2016, I would imagine that, you know, the state legislatures that are left over are less inclusive to women's ideas. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's right. And once as you're seeing kind of more of um, of these critical masses within within democratic caucuses, I think that's also then reflected in outcomes and in, in the legislative outcomes that you're seeing. Another thing that I was thinking about when I was reading over the analysis was when I read data like this and I think about what's happening in the 2020 election, the presidential election, I think we, you know historically we had more women seeking the nomination for the presidency than we've ever had historically, right? At the beginning of this primary, and one of the questions that kept coming up was electability. And I know we aren't talking about presidential races here, but the question of women being electable 
in any political position. But, you know, what never comes into that conversation is how effective women are as leaders, right? And, you know, people keep talking about this meaningless term of electability versus, you know, how effective women are as leaders and how prolific they are. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but this notion of electability and how it's been deployed in the Democratic primary, presidential primary, it's really been sort of code for you know, I think both gender and racial bias, you know, that somehow we have, there's, it's been used to kind of suggest that a white male candidate is the most electable. It's actually not grounded in data. Women win their races at equal levels to men. And so, you know, there's what, we have one example of, (laughs) of a woman presidential candidate and somehow because she, even though she won the popular vote, didn't ultimately get elected president, somehow that's supposed to tell us the story of electability more than if we look across the board at women's races and the outcomes of those races. I mean, this notion of electability is really a myth if, if it's deployed in that way. We ju- you know, there, There's just no data to support it. So I, I think it is important to show that women are very effective, that women legislators But I think it's also important that we push back on a media narrative that's not actually grounded in research data and what it tells us. And what I think is also interesting about kind of the data on so-called electability is that women are winning their races despite the fact that they do, in fact, experience more bias and more challenges. So women candidates, for example, tend to attract more primary opponents than male candidates. So they have to defeat more opponents in order to win than your typical male candidate. And although the fundraising data show that on average, women raise about the same amount of money as male candidates, they do so in smaller increments. So the average contribution is smaller to a women candidate. So in other words, Women candidates have to work harder to, you know, kind of match the amount of money that male candidates can raise. So the fact that women candidates are winning at equal rates, despite having kind of all of these other challenges, speaks to the fact that not only are they electable, like, like they're they can be very very strong and um and uh, and and competitive candidates. Right. I mean that's really interesting. So when you when we do see women who've won their races, you know, they they haven't gone through the same things that men have gone through to win the races. So the, the, the wins are even bigger, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They have to work harder to get there. Exactly. There's another really interesting data point that I want to talk about that women candidates on average are higher quality. How do you measure that exactly? Yeah, well, there's some great data in a variety of studies. Um the Center for American Women in Politics put together a fantastic report called Unfinished Business, and it summarizes a lot of the um, major findings about women running for office uh, on a kind of a whole number of dimensions. And, And I think this issue of the fact that they tend to be on average higher quality, it speaks to the fact on, on why they tend to get elected at equal rates, even if they're experiencing more challenges or more bias against them while running. There are studies that have measured that in a whole variety of ways. And so it, it, it's kind of summarized as, as, as being of higher quality, but it can, it can range from anything from, you know, being a more persuasive public speaker to having more years of service in elective office. So they have more experience running for the types of positions that they're seeking to being, to 
rated better or higher in terms of constituency service and how they respond to their constituents and, and their interests. So on a whole variety of measures, women candidates tend to be perceived as stronger, which I think then relates to this whole kind of electability, um, the fact that it really is a myth and the fact that women are winning their races at equal rates. You know, we talked about the type of legislation that they pass. Do we have any data to suggest that just beyond what is considered women's legislation, you know, legislation around abortion or legislation around, you know, paid leave, for instance, which aren't necessarily just women's issues, but let's just for, for sake of simplifying the argument, what types of legislation do they pass in addition to that? Yeah, it's a great question. And in this analysis, those were the issues that we really focused our analysis on, in part because at the National Women's Law Center, these are many of the policy issues and the policy priorities that the Law Center is really leading on. We didn't look across the board, but it's something that would be interesting to look at. One of the other issues with the data set that we were working with was that you couldn't necessarily on an issue like, for example, abortion, you couldn't tell if it was a bill that was designed to increase access to abortion or restrict access to abortion. So right. we did, we left abortion off of our analysis altogether because the results would not have been um, very meaningful. But on issues that we were able to look at, minimum wage, paid family leave, sexual harassment protections, those we could really tell what they were trying to accomplish with the legislation that they were introducing and enacting. You know, what's really ironic here is that a significant share of Republican voters are women, right? But the party is moving in this direction where these women voters don't have representation in their chosen party. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I think that going back to the differences between Democratic and um, Republican women, I think we are at this moment of... um, sort of this existential threat facing Republican women candidates in the Trump era. As white women have have indeed swung more Democratic post-2016, Republican women have really struggled to prevail in their primaries, and they've become increasingly accountable to a Republican base that, one, is not that concerned with elevating women leaders, And second, has been found to be increasingly characterized by hostile sexism. And so I just think that there are some real questions about not just what it means for policy outcomes, but also what it really means for our democracy if we are going to be in a country where only one party reflects America, you know, really reflects all of the people that comprise the population, that comprise the electorate. And, and I think that really bears some serious attention. I, I you know, like it, yeah. it is increasingly concerning that there is one political party that is becoming even more dominated by only white male leadership, political leadership. You know, I think we have to take a really good look at what the implications are, not just on policy, 
but really for democracy at large. Right. And I'm trying to wrap my brain around what that might mean practically and what the implications might be. And I can't because I don't think we've lived in a world where, you know, the Republican Party has been completely white and all male, although we're going there pretty quickly. I mean, practically, what does that mean? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we are <laughs> starting to see that, right? I mean, with the, you know, with the tremendous assaults on women's bodily autonomy that, you know, we've seen in the in the last years. I mean, all of this has really been taken up to such a tremendous level, you know, that that it really is it pretty alarming. So I, I I think we have to think about kind of what what the implications are. And I you know, I know that there are some within the Republican Party and some Republican women in particular that are are also concerned about this and sounding the alarm bells. But we have a long way to go in terms of reflective representation writ large, but it, it is becoming increasingly stark that the two parties are in very, very different places when it comes to reflective representation. Right. I guess I'm, I'm having a hard time viewing this, you know, outside of a partisan lens because I am a Democrat mm-hmm. and I'm thinking, you know, great, I chose the right party. <laughs> I'm the party that has representation from all groups in the country and that's good. You know, that's great for me. I chose this party, you know, um, but I guess generally when you do have a primarily two party system both parties should reflect the electorate, <laughs> but it's hard to fathom, you know, long term what that might actually look like if we do have one party that's that's all men and that's all white and the other party that is representing the rest of America. And that's that's, you know, passing policy that's important for the rest of America. Right. Um, yeah. I would imagine ideally that that would mean that the party that, that has greater representation would be more successful in winning races. But I don't know if that's necessarily true. It's, it's a hard thing to kind of flush out. That's right. That's right. And I'm going to be really interested in this cycle, this in the 2020 cycle, because there have been some new efforts to really amp up recruitment of Republican women running for office. Like we're, we're seeing continued um, interest. And I think the energy that we saw in 2018 from the look from what I've seen from early filings, it looks like that energy will be sustained through 2020 in terms of Democratic women running up and down ballot. But there has been an effort to also be recruiting more Republican women to to run in 2020. And I'm very curious to see how they prevail. Like that's going to be very telling and I, I think very instructive for kind of the future of the Republican Party as well. Right. So one of the things I was also daydreaming about when I was reading the study was, you know, what we could accomplish if we did have gender parity and state legislations, because we're not there yet. We're making some gains, but we're not quite there. Do you have any ideas of, of how we can help move that along? Yeah, well, I think the other thing that's really important to note is that, you know, I think a lot of the media coverage about this wave of women that ran in 2018, it was kind of framed as though, like, everyday women just suddenly woke up and (laughs) said, I'm running for office. And I mean, I think to a certain extent, there's some truth there. I mean, I think there was a a level of just political interest and political mobilization that happened post-2016 that people got involved in politics in all sorts of different and new ways. But what we also saw in the wake of 2016 was the culmination of work that's taken years to accomplish. And it wasn't just a spontaneous uh, kind of mobilization of new candidates. Many of these candidates have been recruited and trained by organizations working on the ground. I know you had Amanda Littman on recently from Run for Something that right. you know has really been working to uh, 
elect young people and especially in down ballot races there are numbers of organizations that you know have been recruiting and training women candidates LGBTQ candidates, Black candidates, Latinx candidates, AAPI candidates, you know, like really identifying where are their strong leaders and helping give, give them the skills and the training and the support they need to run for office. And so when we look at a state like Nevada and you think, how did we get to this point where there's now 52% where there's a, you know, a majority women legislature? Well, the truth is that Nevada has had a really strong eMERGE chapter for many years. Twelve of the women now serving in the Nevada state legislature are eMERGE alums. And so not only do those types of programs provide the early skills building and training for like, you know, if if you're interested in running for office, what do you need? But they also provide this network for women, right? So that as they make their decisions, as they decide to run for local office, for state office, they are in communication and, and in a community with all sorts of other women running and serving as well. And I think some of the legislative success that we saw in the in the analysis is likely reflects the success of those types of programs as well because you're not then just coming into a state legislature and you know completely having to navigate on your own but you've also have relationships with others that have kind of come up through the pipeline with you and i think that has been a real source of support and strength for a lot of newly elected women state legislators. That's a really important point. I hadn't thought about that, actually. That's a really excellent point about, you know, developing this network of women that you've come up with through the same organization or the same the same program. And and you're right, I did have Amanda Littman on, and she's great from Run for Something. And I know a lot of the Run for Something alums have, you know, they've won state races, including some of the delegates in Virginia, and they've done really great things. So I think that's a, that's a really great start. So if you're a woman listening to this and you you want to run for office, you know, contact some of these groups. And I'll probably publish a list in the show notes along with a link to the study for some of the groups like Emily's List or Run for Something and Higher Heights, which is another one that helps select um, Black women into exactly. office. Exactly. These are really, really important programs. And and where we're starting to see real gains in, in, in representation, not just of of women, but of, you know, kind of all underrepresented populations, it's undoubtedly a byproduct of the investment that these groups have have been making in identifying really talented individuals and helping them, helping provide the skills and the networks and the supports. And indeed, you know, like all of them, (laughs) they're doing amazing work, but none of them, I think, are kind of at this level and scale that they would ideally like to be. So there are huge opportunities to be investing in building that pipeline. And I think what we've seen post-2016 is that those types of investments can really reap tremendous rewards. It's not all instantaneous, but over time, they really just, you know, make a make a huge difference in both political and policy outcomes. Right. Which is why I think that this analysis is really important because it educates people on the fact that this isn't just about electing women just because we want to elect women as women, right? It's about the fact that women are very effective legislators and it's beneficial for everyone to support organizations who help women get into office. Yeah, I think that's really the key. I mean, that, that the finding about, you know, that, that productivity for legislatures 
as a whole increases, that all legislators are more productive, um, that they're introducing and enacting more legislation in legislatures with greater numbers of women was to me the most important finding, you know, and I think all of us that are going to that fight for and work to advance gender justice, racial justice, we do this not because we only want to benefit women, people of color, etc., but because we think it will benefit everyone. And I think what we've seen kind of from the productivity is, uh, data is that there are benefits. There are whole, you know, kind of system-wide benefits to more reflective uh, representation. Well, Julie Kohler, thank you so much for joining me and talking about this really important analysis. And thank you so much for doing this work. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening. The Electorate is independently created and produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. And of course, I'm the host. But I also do all of the editing, the audio, and the graphics. You name it, it's on my plate. So if you enjoyed this episode of The Electorate, please help The Electorate grow by subscribing. Just hit the subscribe button on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Also leave a review for The Electorate on iTunes. Lastly, one final way to help The Electorate is by following The Electorate on social media. That's at Electorate on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.